This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Michael Grando. Originally from western New York, Michael made his way to Nashville, Tennessee in 1999. Before settling in Nashville, he spent a few years in Atlanta, Georgia, getting the most he could out of the music scene there. For several years, Michael held the drum chair for national recording artist Chris Knight. He appeared on both his Heart of Stone album, produced by Dan Baird, formerly of the Georgia Satellites, and on Chris's 2012 release titled Little Victories, which was produced by Grammy Award-winning Ray Kennedy and featured performances by Buddy Miller and John Prine. Since the spring of 2013, Michael has been touring with multi-platinum recording artist Joe Diffie. Michael has performed and recorded with a very diverse group of artists, including such names as Charlie Daniels, Jason Aldean, Dan Baird, Todd Snyder, Warren E. Hodges from Jason and the Scorchers, Colonel Bruce Hampton, Blueground, Undergrass, and many, many more. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. If you've noticed in recent episodes, we've slightly changed our intro when we've got a new announcer. That's my good buddy, Mickey Ryan. Big shout out and thanks to him for helping us make some uh, new changes to our intro. Here's some feedback in the form of an email we received from a listener. Hi, Matt. I discovered the Working Drummer podcast a few months ago, and I can't stop listening to past shows. It's one of my favorite podcasts. You have interviewed so many of my heroes. Just finished the one with Todd Zuckerman. A lot of gems in that one. I play a lot of country music, and I can really relate to the Nashville drummers you have interviewed. You do a great job asking good questions. On another topic, I have developed a tempo monitor that attaches to a drum that can measure BPM as you play, similar to the old beat bug, if you remember those. But this one has some enhancements. You can check it out here, rocktempo.com. Keep up the good work. Best regards, Rick Jones. Um, I've mentioned to Rick that I would love to do a shout-out for his Rock Tempo. Again, that's rocktempo.com, R-O-K, T-E-M-P-O dot com. I use something like this a lot, and I've always um, really liked the uh, beat bug that was out there. So check that out, and thanks for the kind words, Rick, and thanks for listening. Folks, when you leave comments and ratings like this, it helps spread the word and it helps us grow. So uh, please do so, and uh, if we find yours, we are happy to read that on the show. If you use the hashtag Working Drummer, we'll include you on Instagram and our stories. If you want to support what Zach and I are doing here at the Working Drummer Podcast, there's a couple ways that you can do that. On the homepage of our website, workingdrummer.net, you can find a button for PayPal. There's also a button that is a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is an easy and convenient way to support the podcast on a regular basis. Donations start at a dollar and you have access to the bonus material that we're providing on a monthly basis from past guests. As always, any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. So here you go. Here's my conversation with Michael Grando. 
this is how it works in our band. If we don't have that instrument on stage, we don't make that sound. <laughs> you know? We don't make that sound. It's just the way it is, man. And the only thing I run is I run a click on, you know, just keep tempos consistent, keep everybody honest. And it's for Diffy because, you know, it's hard to sing. You know, if tempos are not where you're used to having them yeah. and you're having a hard night or you're at elevation or it's 110 degrees, to have to sing faster or harder or whatever, it's, you know, it's hard. So I do that. I run a click, but that's the only other thing that's on stage except the instruments that you see on stage. So, yeah. you know, can can you give us like any more of an overview of Joe Diffie for anybody that may not be familiar with him? Like uh, just kind of like history. With, yeah, a little, just a little bit of his history, kind of. Uh, well, I mean, you know, he came like he came to Nashville uh, via Oklahoma, singing demos here. He worked at Gibson. He did He did all the same shit that we all do, you know. You mm-hmm. scuffle and you hustle and you take shitty jobs and you do whatever. And he sang demos for a while and then he got his deal. And then uh, his first six singles all went number one. That's he amazing. had 13 number ones, 20 top tens. Jeez. 25-year Opry member. Still sings his ass off, so I don't know what else to tell you. You know, he's a good no. guy. He's not a pain in the ass, and he sings great, and it's a great band. And yeah, you know, if I'm gonna be out there doing it, it better be all that shit because you know everything else that goes along with it makes me want to stay home mostly. <laughs> you know, I, I I think I opened up. I was in a band that opened up for him in Georgia. Jer was playing mm-hmm. bass. I don't think you were on the gig. It was maybe oh, it was, not yet. It was probably it Nick. was it was Savannah Jack. Oh hell's bells! Well, there you go. Yeah, and uh, he sounded great. Yeah, that was pro- that was before. That must have been before my time. That would have been Nick Milner, who's okay. also a monster, great player, man, yeah. and a sweetheart, a good friend. Yeah, he works for Son. He works for Sonar now. That's... Works as an artist relations guy for Sonar. I think he was there for about the same amount of time I've been there as of right now. He was there for yeah. about seven years, I think. Has there been, in your experience, in the last seven years working mm. with someone like Joe? Has there been any takeaway for you about the music business, about the industry, about the way it's worked that you've carried with you in the way you navigate this whole business? Man, the music business is not what the music business used to be. It's like it's it's Mm -hmm. kind of in a pretty big state of flux as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course. The performance side of it, people are always going to tour and they're always going to do that kind of shit. And I think probably more now than ever, uh, you have to do that because people aren't selling records anymore and all that kind of shit's happening. And everybody and their brother has a studio in their house and you can you can make an incredible recording in your own backyard, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, the landscape has changed considerably as far as that's concerned. It's like, you know, I always hear guys talking about wanting, man, I really want to, you know, come here and do sessions and shit. Well, I wish you a lot of luck with that. I mean, I hope you get to do what you want to do. We all, I mean, do you know anybody, any pro players in this town who don't do sessions? Because I don't. You know, do you know anybody that's called you up, that's called the cat up and said, man, we come play my shit? No, dude, I only do live gigs. We all we're all fucking session players. Every last one of us. Yeah, and that's part of the you know that's part of the deal. Now it's like there's so many guys and there are so many great guys and guys are doing what we were just talking about a little while ago. They got tracking in their house and all that kind of shit. So that has changed a lot. There's a lot of competition in that regard. As far as if you want to come here and try and be that guy, 
I would suggest that you try and broaden your horizons and maybe look into several revenue streams, as they say in the industry, because, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, the tracking shit, unless you happen to fall face first into something really great, then it's probably not a reality at this point in the game, you know. Uh, and I'm okay with that. You know, I mean, I've made records and I still get called to do sessions and, and, yeah. and it's cool. And I'm happy. I'm just as happy playing live as I am in the studio. Mm-hmm. It's a two different animals for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, people are still coming to shows. Uh, I think it's kind of weird because as the as society gets a little more insular, especially younger people, they spend a lot of time with their faces in the phone. Yeah. And... So I think that has had maybe some effect on attendance and, and you know, to some degree, because I think the people are just, you know, hell, even when they're there, you know, oh, I right. look into the crowd and like the yeah. first 15 rows got their face stuck in the phone or they got it turned around and they're pointing it at us making videos, which cool. I mean, great. But, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like that that whole experience has changed, too, because now it's gone from, you know, it has to be a one on one. You know, you have to be there and. You know, you have to be there, man. Yeah. Now you don't have to be there. You can sit in your living room and watch whatever you want to from whenever you want to. And I think that changed, kind of changes things, too. Um, it's uh, Talking with Todd Zuckerman a couple weeks ago, we yeah. were talking about, like, people forget when you're there at the concert, you feel the feels. Right, yeah, You're man. not going to get that it's on a It's a whole experience. Phone. It's part of the deal. It's just like when you, we used to have records. Yes. When when LPs were there wasn't any CDs, there weren't any downloads, none of that shit. It was part of the experience of having a new record, right? What did you do? You went to the store, you bought the record, you brought it home, you opened the cell phone, you took it out, you look at the record, you put it on, you play it. First thing you do is you pull out the sleeves, you read all the liner notes, you look at all the pictures. That's how I learned all of that shit. Mm-hmm. That's how I learned how to set up my drums. That's how I learned how to, you know. Whatever. So That's what how you, I try to mimic sounds. You know, it was all, it's a whole experience, man. Same with going to a show. So. And this thing has been, we've discussed this many times with, with different people, this whole scenario. But what would you say to the 22-year-old, the 20-year-old that wants to get into this and his or her experience hasn't been what yours and mine has been, reading liner notes and things mm. like that, to then... Use that as a launching point to f- to find out what other records this drummer played on or this bass player played on, and and kind of where this band fits in the overall landscape of music. And so you're educated, you understand these things, so that you're ready to do any kind of gig or any kind of session because you understand genres. Right. And uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I mean. Again, to, to keep returning to the same, you know, as far as that's concerned, to my mind, the greatest thing that's ever come from the good old interwebs mm-hmm. is YouTube, because mm-hmm. we never had access to any of that shit. Yeah. You want to watch Train in 1960? There he is. Mm-hmm. Train you know? the band was around in 19- 1960? Yes, they were great. They were young, but they still had, they were, they were very good. No, you know what I mean. It's yeah, like, you're right. Man, if you want to see anything from the heyday of the of its existence, whether it's you know Charlie Parker or Black Sabbath or whatever it is, you just put it in the machine and boom, there it is. Yeah. Not only are you hearing it, but you're seeing it happen, which yeah. is fucking incredible. It's like time travel. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Yeah. We didn't have that. Like I was just telling you mm-hmm. about my son sitting in there learning how to play Black Hole Sun on the guitar. Well, you know, he goes to the YouTube's and boop. 
Show me how to play Black Hole Sun. Wham, there you go. Yeah. You know, my my YouTube was a stack of records in the basement. That's mm-hmm. what I did. Mm-hmm. It became eventually so scratched they wouldn't play anymore because I was dropping the needle over and over trying to figure out what the hell was going on. So, that's but that's how, you know, I mean, that's that's huge, man. And if, you are, if you're 22 and you want to do this and you want to know about that shit, use that resource, dude. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And I wish I, you know... I love the shit out of it. I, you know, you get down those rabbit holes. I do it all the time. You, like, you start out, you know, somehow I wound up at Sun Ra. I don't know how that happened, but okay, it's cool. Yeah. So, you know, just the amount of stuff that's available and just it's mind boggling, man, you know. Right. So. You, you can discover these things. You can find out who was playing what. and Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Things. That's great. I love that. I, you know, I drew probably, I don't know, somewhere in the range of 10,000 drum sets in my notebook when I was going to school. Yeah. yeah. If I could have got a grade for drum set drawing, I'm sure I would have a Ph.D. by now. But, you know, uh, that's, to long story short, that would be my thing. It's like, man, use use. The YouTube, you see the internet to your advantage, man. All that shit's out there. It's all out there, you know? So funny what you say about LPs. I bought a Dave Brubeck record used, and during Joe Morello, one of Joe Morello's solos, it kept skipping. And it took me a (laughs) while. Did you learn the solo that way? No. It took me a while to figure, this is just a couple years ago, and I was like... I know why it's skipping because whoever had this record right, before they went me, back to that same spot fifty times because they couldn't figure out the lick. Either to listen to it or to learn it. Yeah, or man, to totally absolutely. It well, speaking of drawing drum sets, what, what, when, when did you realize that you were inflicted with this disease oh, that man. we all have? My mother says before I was even out of the womb, I was already kicking and banging. <laughs> uh, the first set of drums appeared at three years old. Wow. On Christmas. Okay. And it's been pretty much downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting, I, I, I was in, uh, we were in California not too long ago, and uh, my mom and sister live out there in San Francisco, and we were playing pretty close, about mm. an hour or two away. So they came out to the show, and uh, we had a backline kit that day, and there was uh an eight inch eight by 14 RC snare drum, like an old, like a real one recording mm. custom. And it was just badass, man. Oh, wow. I tuned it up and I hit that thing and I was like, Oh shit. So I was kind of like, you know, you know how you get <laughs> yeah. like right. getting all, you know, getting all uh, jittery over the drum and being, Oh, this is some good shit. So I was talking about it sitting in the, in the dressing room my mom and sister were sitting there and somebody said something to me about the drum I'm like yeah that thing's badass I'd like to take that thing home with me and my mom and my sister both went uh oh (laughs) (laughs) I'm like this is a disease I've had for a very very long time so yeah yeah, you don't get I don't think if you really got it you don't ever get over it no it's funny because I mean there's times I I feel fried maybe from travel or or just playing too many shows in a row and like, damn, what's going on? And then, you know, I see a picture of somebody set up and I'm like, ooh, look at that. Oh, I know. I'm like, Dude, my whole Instagram thing is like nothing but puppies and drum sets. It's perfect. If I could have that shit and none of the other, I'd be, I'd be golden. But did, did you play in school growing up? Uh-uh. No? Not really, man. I, I Honestly, I was not... Uh, um, You're not university material? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. Um you know, along around the age of sixteen or seventeen, I was—I already—I was in—I got in my first band, like working band, playing 
gigs making money at like 15. So at 16 or 17, I had been bitten by the rock and roll thing pretty bad, and I just wanted to play the drums. And so I, they wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do in school, so I just didn't do, do that. Oh, okay. I just went, you know what I mean? I just like, I didn't want to join their band and do their, you know, I just went off with my buddies and like we played Black Sabbath tunes. That's what we wanted to do. Satin so, doll or Satan? Right. There you go. Like, See? It's, yeah, you know, what do I do? It could go either way. And you, you grew up in New York State. I grew up in upstate New York, yeah, primarily, like okay. around Rochester, Finger Lakes area, really. Mm -hmm. So, is that where Lawrence Welk is from? No, no, but that actually is where uh, um, Rod Serling is from. He's up from. Oh, that's from in that cool. area. Yeah. So it was somebody on the gig that said, uh, "I remember there was this. Uh, we were talking about all the different actors that have been in." in um, Twilight Zone. Oh yeah, you know before they their careers yeah. blew up. Andy Griffith too, same thing. Like right. tons of yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guitar player goes, yeah. Well, there was this one really weird Twilight Zone episode, and like, wait, time out. <laughs> you say one, one. <laughs> if you had said there was really one not weird episode, you might have been right. Nashville uh, via Atlanta. Okay. Um, I left New York in 95, moved to Atlanta the year before the Olympics. Mm. Um, and so that city just went completely apeshit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to, having grown up in New York, I already kind of knew what you know what that was like um and i when i was younger we lived in the city and my dad was was a pro player too he was a saxophone player oh really okay so we grew up you know i grew up uh i was born in buffalo but like the first year of my life we moved to new york i lived on the lower east side and then we lived in brooklyn for a lot of years <sighs> and so um uh i already kind of knew what new york was like and i didn't really want to go to la and so I hadn't really thought about Nashville all that much, but I knew there was kind of a cool scene in Atlanta. So I went there to check it out, and there was mm -hmm. tons of fucking great players. There were a lot of venues happening at that time. And, yeah. um, and it was cool, man. It was a great place. I met a lot of really amazing world-class musicians who I still have our friends with today. And Was there a kind of music you found yourself in a lot of? I, you know... Um, I always kind of like, I always did the club thing with whoever doing whatever, you know, playing blues gigs or R&B gigs and all that kind of shit. But eventually I kind of found my way into that uh, world of um, ARU and widespread and all those kind of guys. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in a band there in Atlanta for several years uh, called Blueground Undergrass. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And that was uh, a great name. That was... Uh, Jeff Mosier, Reverend Jeff Mosier, um, and his brother Johnny. Jeff played with uh, with Bruce Hampton for a long time in the original one of the original incarnations of ARU. Mm. And so, uh, and in fact, Bruce was pretty instrumental in getting me in that band because he was the one I think who recommended me for to Jeff to do it. That's cool. And um, so I kind of wound up running in that circle with all those guys, you know. Uh, um, 
the guys, uh, all the guys that have been in and out of ARU, you know, Jeff Seip and uh, Sean O'Rourke and Lee Venters, all those guys, all, all monster drummers, great mm-hmm. players and, and sweetheart dudes. And um, so I did that there for several years. We made a couple of records, toured a bunch. Uh, I played, I got, had the chance to work with Bruce some, which was pretty cool because yeah. he was a character and a half, man, <laughs> one of a kind, you know, and he was like, you know, the, the whole Zambi thing, you know, where it's, you just kind of, he, Bruce's thing was, he just was always craved the most bizarre, weird shit. You know, it was just, he kind of, kind of was a magnet for it. It just came to him, you know? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I was with him and we're driving down the highway in alabama in the van and trailer and there's like it was me and bruce and dan matrazo and uh joseph moore was playing bass who now lives in uh, las vegas i think and uh we're driving down the road and i look out the van window and here's a fucking guy walking down the side of the road with an ostrich on a leash <laughs> and that's bruce that's the kind of shit that would just appear when Bruce was around. So that was pretty cool, man. To spend time with him and get to, you know, have a little piece of that is pretty mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah. Uh, lots of great players, man. I did, speaking of session work, I did a lot of session work there and, uh, and it was great. You know, I, and I, I owe a huge debt to all of those cats, particularly, uh, Sean O'Rourke and a couple of those guys who were very instrumental in, in uh, saying, you know, this fucking guy can play, you need to hire him. And they did, and the rest is, as they say, history. That kind of helped make the transition for you? That was my first foray into, um, I guess, like semi-acoustic or what could be deemed sort of country-ish. Okay. Sort of, even though it really wasn't. I mean, it was like, it was kind of, it was, the, the instrumentation was, Steel guitar, guitar, bass, drums, banjo, and fiddle. Okay. But all electric, and... Um, Would it fall into the Americana? It, it could run the gamut from Americana to, you know, to fusion-y. So yeah. it covered a pretty good, you know, but that instrumentation was something I was not certainly not familiar with when I went there because I had never, you know... It's probably the first damn steel guitar I ever saw in person. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, I mean, it was like, that was kind of a, it was sort of eye opening for me cause it kind of changed my, you know, you got to change the way you think about things and, you know, it's a, just a different, you know, different thing. So, uh, it was cool and it kind of, for me, it just sort of ran its course and I was ready to Atlanta had gotten to the point where it was like, it's just hard to live there, man. Hmm. I love it. And it's really cool. They're amazing players. There's a lot of really cool shit there, but whew, man, you know, and I came in and I thought, well, maybe it's time to, you know, make a jump. And I came here and I've been here 20 years almost. When did you move here? I moved here in the end of, uh, end of 99. Me too. So there you go. So you've seen the whole, I mean, it's like I drive down streets in the city and don't know where I am. I know. <laughs> like, I holy all the shit, time. dude. Yeah. You know, drive down 8th Avenue, it's like driving through the Grand Canyon. There's freaking condos the entire yeah. way all. And it's like, when I moved here, it, it wasn't like that at all. Yeah. Did you move here with friends? Uh, uh-uh. or a No, gig? that was my second. Okay. I moved from New York to Atlanta and didn't know anybody. Yeah. And just kind of, you know, I did it the way you do it, man. You go out and hang out and, you know, yeah. try and meet cats and 
wait for an opportunity to sit in and play some. And hopefully, if you're worth a shit, one so, thing leads to another. I'm not good at the glad handing and the bullshitting kind of stuff. Yeah. If I like you, mm-hmm. then I like you. Right. I don't. I'm not good at pretending I like people to get you know, shit from them. No, because people see that. Well, yeah. They'll eventually, you're going to get outed for that shit. But I mean, I know uh, you've seen it. I've seen it. We've all seen it. Yeah. Like you know that guy who, while you're standing there talking to him, he's looking around the room to see if there's anybody more important he should be talking to. You know, yeah. it's that yeah. kind of shit. Yeah. I don't. I don't operate like that. No. I don't sell guys. I don't sell guys out from under gigs if i book a gig and somebody calls me for a gig that pays me more nope. i won't go fuck that yeah. I, I just do what i said i would do because the only thing you got to hang your hat on in this business is your fucking name and your reputation so you better do the right thing and you know because that shit travels fast man you might get by for a little while but eventually cats are going to figure it out and that's going to be it yeah you know for sure so just be upfront and be real and don't be a pain in the ass and Here, here's the other thing that i like to drive home that that i've discovered is that when you behave a certain way you attract other people to that kind of right. thing yeah. and you're sur- then you find yourself surrounded by great people yeah that you can trust you know I'll, I'll take you with your with your shortcomings and your faults and your warts and your whatever because i sure as hell got them but i'd rather have that than a bunch of bullshitters and phonies who are you know, blowing smoke up your ass and you know you'd never know if they're telling you the truth gets or what old, gets old you know? real fast and that's we all know how that shit works and there's plenty of that in this business you know but again it only gets you so far because eventually you get called out on it but you know still people think that that's the way to do it man you know Uh, i heard in an interview with with gad one time he said you get your next gig off what you did on your last gig and that is the truth yeah i mean you want to get down to it really you know i'm that's that's how you get jobs any gig i've ever had like the diffie gig that wasn't an audition gig uh, the the times that the, the, all the years I spent working for Chris Knight, that was not an audition gig. Um, I went out and did a bunch of dates with Charlie Daniels so, several years ago when Pat was having some health issues and needed somebody to cover. That was not an audition gig. So I, it's never that. Any gig I've ever had or anything that's ever happened that was worth the shit to me in the music business has been because of what i have done as a player and hopefully as a human being and the cats that i know and how i've treated them and interacted with guys and not doing the shit i was just talking about like you know bullshitting guys or pulling the rug out from under somebody because they got offered 25 dollars more it's like you know think about that 25 bucks man you're gonna get that one time but if you're a straight shooter and not a bullshitter you'll work a long long time you know uh to add on top of that too many people I hear complaining about stuff. Now, I understand that sometimes there are certain expectations that you'd be like, okay, this management needs to get this right or whatever, or you want to make sure that your backline works. Right. Yeah, of course. But learn how to roll with it because people Man, appreciate that too. You know, that's the other thing. I want to, when people talk about that stuff and they want to like, you know, come come to Nashville, man, get an artist gig and road gig. And it's like, listen, man, let me just tell you right now, it's not for everybody. Listen, man. Well, you know what I mean? I mean, I kind of went Sammy Davis. You did, you did, just for a second. But, you know, it's like everybody thinks, because they only see the good shit. You know, you see, yes, it's a huge stage, tons of lights. Yes, we played with six other bands that you love. And yes, I was at the Rhyme. And yes, all that shit. And that's all fucking great. What you didn't see was, you know, 
22 hours of bus riding and flat meat and, you know, shitty catering night after night and back line that doesn't really work and it's pouring rain and you're in another nasty, dirty, muddy arena somewhere in the middle of who knows where you are. So you need to be, you know, it's kind of like the Marines, man. You need to be able to adapt and overcome or you're just not going to make it, you know. And it ain't for everybody, honestly. I mean, you know, and there's not any shame in that. And people think, I have lots of cats that I grew up with uh, that I played with when I was younger, you know. And uh, I'm kind of like the one, you know, I'm the one that went over the wall kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Most of those guys are still there doing what they were doing 30 years ago. Which, again, you know, I mean, it ain't for everybody. And they all kind of want to live vicariously through me and, you know. And probably great players and great people. Yeah, good, you know, dear friends and guys, you know, they're still playing and doing stuff. And that's, yeah. you know, that's it's amazing that they're doing it. And it's cool because music is something you can do for your entire life. It doesn't have to be your profession, you know. You don't have to do it at this level, you know. It doesn't? Wait, what? Yeah. What have I been doing? I'm sorry, man. Did you not know that? <laughs> you, Cosmetology, dude. It's the way of the future. You can do eyebrows. Now they tattoo that shit on. You can pluck them all out. See? Yeah, see? You're missing out. You're missing the boat. <laughs> but, yes, there you go. How did the Chris Knight gig come about? Uh, well, like I said, Chris Knight gig was a, a call from, from actually from Jared Hoffman, who was playing yeah. bass with him at the time. Okay. And uh, I said, do you want this gig? <laughs> I said, sure I do. Mm-hmm. And that was, I went and learned, you know, learned the set and uh, the rest, again, is history. So, and Chris, you know, I don't know what you what you know about Chris at all. A little bit. Um, he, you know, he's a genius, songwriter, incredible. Like, you know, people say his name next to people like Steve Earle and Towns Van Zandt and those kind of people. He's mm-hmm. a serious ass yeah. songwriter. I'm yeah. incredible. Uh He's also <laughs> a bit of a uh, curmudgeon, if you will. So, yeah, I've heard that. So, yeah, he's a man of few words. And so uh, when I got the gig, I showed up and we did like one rehearsal and then went out and did shows. Like, But so I showed up at the first rehearsal. Did Jerry give you any heads up? About? Just the gig, the vibe? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I had... I had I had some idea. I didn't have, I had no idea, but I had some idea. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, really, like, the only instruction that I got from Chris on the day that, I, the first day I showed up and went into rehearsal, is like, you know, I'm like, man, what do you, you know, is there something you want me to do? How do you want, you know, how do you want to do this? I'm trying to figure out, you know, want to, obviously you want to do a good job and do what the dude wants you to do. Right. And uh, all I got from him is, I just want it to be big and badass. <laughs> I've got that. <laughs> lucky you, man. This, this is your lucky day. I can do that. So, you know, so that's how I got the gig. And then um, and then I started doing that. And eventually um, it came time for him to make a record. Yeah. And he got uh, Dan Baird yeah. to produce it. Yeah. And then so Dan came out and... Uh, played some shows with us and like this was before you know i knew that the record was like you know there was discussion about the record and whatever else and that was all that i had heard at that point so then dan showed up and he came out and played four or five shows with us and then um about a week or so i guess after that 
he called me and said, Dan called me and said, uh, Chris wants you to uh, play on the new record. That's great. And so, and that's what Dan had been like, unbeknownst to me at the time, he told me this later on, but he said, you know, the reason I came out and played those shows is I was scouting to see if you're going to be able to do it or not. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I'm like, well, thank you. I'm glad. So, and through that association with Dan, who I love and is one of my favorite people and is a fucking, he's the Keith Richards of Nashville. If you don't think so, you're wrong because he's a badass. Yeah. Um, through that association, that wound up, I wound up playing on several more. I played on two Chris Knight records. The second one, uh, Ray Kennedy produced that one. Okay. Dan Dan played on that one and and uh, and did some co-writing with Chris on that one. And then I played on another one uh, that Dan produced for a guy named Austin Cunningham, who's a Texas guy, but he kind of bounces back and forth between here and there, and he's written a bunch of stuff. And and so through that through Dan through Dan alone. It was like I got to play uh, on two of Chris's records. I played with Keith Christopher, who's a monster fucking bass player of the world, mm. who now plays with Leonard Skinner. Oh, wow. Uh, I got to play with Warner Hodges from Jason and Scorchers. Oh, right. Okay. I got to play with Todd Snyder. Yeah. Uh, and that's all due to Dan. And again, it goes back to the same shit because you show up and you do the gig and you be cool and you yeah. try and play good and you know, and it all works out, man, hopefully. Do you do you remember anything about Dan in the studio that was instructive or saying a piece of advice from him or <laughs> direction? The, the greatest thing Dan said was uh, Dan's thing is always just play dumb, man. Don't try and be clever because you're just the only person you're really wind up outwitting is yourself. You know, <laughs> just play dumb, dude. Play dumb. And he said that you know he said, he we did a thing uh, a while several years ago now with uh, it was Todd Snyder and Warner and a bunch of the people I just mentioned actually. And it was uh, and of all things, totally bizarro. It was um, Don was played bass. Wow. So. And I don't know, that's another thing that kind of boggles my mind is how somehow or another he's managed to morph into this Americana world. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but now he's like, every time I turn around, there he is. But anyway, I digress. Um, so we played um, uh, the cannery for the um, Americana okay. thing when it was going mm-hmm. on. And one of the tunes we wanted to do was Keep Your Hands to Yourself. And so that was Dan's instruction at rehearsal. Just play dumb. Play really dumb like you're 15 and just... So for the record, if anybody's not familiar with Dan Baird, yes, Georgia Satellites. Georgia Satellites, okay. yeah. Dan yeah. Baird and Homemade Sin, The Yahoos. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written tons and tons of stuff and wrote, you know, Keep Your Hands to Yourself, which is uh, still probably gets played as much as any damn rock and roll song it, there is. It does, yeah. I mean, like, that's like one of the ones. Yeah, it is. Old-time rock and roll. You know, hands to yourself. What else? Turn the page. I mean, there's like, right. there are ones, you know, yeah. I don't think there are too many people you could say it to unless they live in a cave on a remote island who don't know what that is. Right. So that is a pretty amazing thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was his advice. Just play dumb. So, and, uh, you know, it's not hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm not playing. I'm just surprised that he wanted to, or uh, that he would play it. I didn't know if he was like, I'm not playing that song. Well, oh, that song? Yeah. No, I mean, you know, he's, 
He's grateful. I probably okay. don't like playing it more than he does. <laughs> just because, no, you just, know, yeah. there's nothing more irritating than playing a song with someone and just having them just destroy it. Yeah. And it's like, man, you know, and that it's it's a pet peeve and I'm probably going to piss people off, but I'm going to say it cuz I don't care. Uh, sometimes you don't need to reinterpret the song. Sometimes the song is the way the song is because that's the fucking way the song is. Yeah. You need to leave it alone. If yeah. you think you're making it better, you're probably not. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of those songs. Like everybody has their own, you know, do their own little kitschy weirdnesses and all that stuff too. It's like, man, you know, it's some things you're just not supposed to mess around with. And, yeah. you know, there's if it ain't broke, don't of, fix it. There's a lot of examples of those, you know, especially if you're covering different songs. And yeah, some, and some songs it, are classic. You know, it's like, I get that. You know, I mean, yeah. as far as like people, people get wanting bored to. Or, yeah, you, know, you want to put your own, you know. Right, right. You know, I mean, I'm not saying don't play. Don't have your own personality or play like you play or do whatever it is you do. But, um, you know, songs are presented in a certain way for a reason. Mm-hmm. That this is, you know, and that to me is like that's kind of a pet peeve is when it's so far away from what it was. It's like, well shit till I heard the first three or four chords, I really had no idea what we were doing. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. So no, I, I had a chance to meet uh, Dan when I first moved to town, the first band I was in, he produced. Yeah. And my biggest takeaway from him in the studio, uh, oh, oh gosh, I'm, I mean, keeping it simple, playing dumb for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, but also, he and I were were gonna throw a bunch of percussion on, just do it together. He mm-hmm. was just throwing down some cowbell, and I was gonna shake the tambourine. And I do this to this day when I'm tracking a tambourine part. I used to just smash two and four, and he's like, "Man, just you know, it doesn't like the microphone's gonna do all the work. Right, you don't need to kill it. You know, it's and he was just like, just be chill, and." It's been great. Yeah. And I every time I do a tambourine track, I think of Dan Baird. I'm like, he, he just knows it. You know, the other thing about Dan, it's the best thing, man, is that in the studio, and I'm sure you probably had the same experience, he's very good at just kind of gently nudging people in the right direction <laughs> without necessarily ruffling feathers and letting them know that it's happening he's got uh, an energy about him yeah he sure. he, he can steer energy. you well he can yeah and he can but he can steer things in the right direction and not make it feel like because you know as well as i do that people get nutted up over their shit you know it's like somebody's songs or somebody's music or somebody's whatever to them is very personal and so as soon as you get somebody in there even though you hired this person to do that and they start getting in there and dicking around and tinkering it, it can piss you off if they're not doing it in a way that's not you know mm-hmm. uh irritating or confrontational or whatever i whatever word it is you want to use but dan was always kind of very good at you know just gently sort of you know a little bump just kind of get you going in the right direction you know, and that was enough usually. So, but keeps it fun. Oh uh, yeah, it was. We I spent more time laughing, and yeah, you know, we still do. I mean, I just saw him not too long ago, and and uh, you know, it's the same shit. He's he's crazy, but he's a genius. He's, man. He he's is he cancer guy. free. Yes, yeah. thank goodness. Yeah, he's yeah. doing well. He had man. a scare there for a while. Yeah, the, those guys who are out doing dates. Uh, the homemade sin thing is happening, and I think that uh, he may have. I think he told me they're going to do like a short yahoos thing like a cruise thing Hmm. so one of those rock and roll cruises probably but i did a session with him and the songwriter wanted to book us on a sunday 
and he goes, look, there's college football championships going on. <laughs> I can't. I can't Like, what if we brought a TV into the, it was a studio in a barn, big open room, everybody in the same room together. Right. He's like, engineer, I'll bring a TV in. Would that work? Yeah, that'd be cool. So I'm set up. He's kind of in front of me, watching TV. We're tracking. He's playing the parts. He's reacting to somebody fumbling. Right. He's watching the game and tracking and during producing. The and the, of I'm course. trying not to laugh. I'm trying to keep my concentration oh, my during the take, but I love it. He's, he's a piece of work, man. He just kept it. He kept it light. For yeah, sure. he's fun. He's a good. He's a sweetheart of a human and just a monster player, man. It's, you know. Like I said, to me, he's like the Keith Richards of Nashville. It's interesting. Yeah, you that's know? a good, that's a like really good... Like, if you good. want a real, honest-to-goodness, rock-and-roll, badass guitar guy, he's your guy. Before I moved to Nashville, I never used a click live. I always understood the relationship that we need to have with it when we're in the studio. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like the idea of being able to use it on a regular basis mm-hmm. and then learn to like really love it and the security that comes along with it. Yeah. There's, well, here's the thing about that to me. It's like, first of all, guys like get freaked out about it, uh, you know, and I think they're just looking at it from the wrong perspective. It's not, it's not there to tell you what to do. Hmm. It's, to me, it's like a speed limit sign, right? The posted speed limit is 55. I can go 50. I can go 60. It's going to stay at 55. All it, it's just a guide, you know, it's just guiding me. It's just giving me a reference point. Right. You know, sometimes I want to be more on top. Sometimes I want to be more behind. Sometimes I'm not even trying to, and I just am because some days you have more energy, whatever. I had, you know, an extra cup of coffee for, uh, who knows what, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, as soon as you realize that it's there as to assist you, not to piss you off, you'll be a lot happier, you know, and guys worry so much about it, man. It's like, don't, and I use, uh, I use that frozen ape thing, that tempo advanced. Mm -hmm. Um, and it has, uh, it has the ability to assign different sounds to the subdivision so that i can get you know like i can get shakers and yep. tambourines and cowbells and all kinds of shit so i sort of like made myself little loops for everything yeah and to me it's a lot easier to you play with set, set lists as well with names and stuff yeah 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 i have a set you know and you can i can change it or do whatever yeah. i can drop and drag them and change the order and yeah. change tempos do whatever i need to do Um, But to me, the thing about that that I really like is that it just feels like, you know, instead of just having that stupid click banging in your head, which I do not enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, You feel like you're playing music. Yeah. And it's like, you know, this is just a percussion player with good time. That's all that is, you know. Really good. Really good time. So, (laughs) you know, if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to put yourself against the machine, you're probably going to lose every time. I don't give a shit how good your time is. Nobody's that perfect. But But, you're not supposed to be either, you know. But it's not about playing perfect time. It's about, so, and for a lot of us, we're the only ones with the click. Right, and I am. Now, there are situations where, you know, everybody on on board has got ears and they're pumping a click and whoever wants it and there's loops and stuff. Right. But a lot of times, if you are running a click, a lot of times you're the only one. So 
I was having this conversation with a producer that's been out on the road playing guitar with Michelle Wright, mm-hmm. and I'm running a click, and we're talking about that relationship that the drummer has with everybody as we're interpreting the click. So there's those days where maybe we're feeling draggy or right. playing yeah. a little bit too on top. So what happens is everyone is listening to you. And you are the leader, mm-hmm. setting the time, setting the feel. Mm-hmm. Well, say there's that day, I'm just feeling, I'm rushing the click. And I'm like, I, I rush a fill and I come back in and I'm like, oh man, I, I want to bring this back. But I have to not only bring myself back, I have to lead everyone else yeah. back. Yeah. So in that conversation, he was talking about, he goes, if you look at a grid and I've got somebody like Greg Morrow laying down a track, mm-hmm. here's what I see. Now... This could be, this is just what he told me, which right. I just find fascinating. I just want to get your reaction from yeah. this. He goes, so kick, snare, hi-hat. Here's what I see. I see the hi-hat a little bit behind. Mm-hmm. I see the kick drum a little bit ahead. Mm-hmm. And I see the snare drum mostly bang on. He goes, because what do people mostly have? So if if you have a drummer that's maybe playing and the hi-hat is rushed the band's going to rush if the hi-hat's a little bit laid back the band's going to lay back lay back because a lot of people use the hi-hat as right, the that's guide their, post yeah right that's their that's their guide I'm, he, he, I am with you. he told me a couple other things he says when the, the kick drum sometimes takes a while to get to everyone the mm-hmm. low end boom and then so if it's a little bit on top and a lot of times if somebody wants a little bit of drums in their mix and their wedge their ears it's usually hi-hat, you know? Yeah. If it's even mic'd. Uh, right, yeah, right. Well, that's a... You know? Yeah. So that conversation alone, you know, obviously that's not gospel, but that was an interesting idea because that's the challenge that I have is that, again, if I'm, if I rush or whatever, the band starts to rush because they're just using me as... Right, you're the metronome. You're, I am the you're, metronome. You're their click. Well, if I'm not with the metronome, then then they're not with it either, and I'm right. trying to move things. Yeah. So, I don't know. What's 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 your thoughts on that? Have you? I mean, you've got. I mean, I I've played with your guitar player once. Yeah, he was great. Which young, one? Young dude. You talking about William Bagby? Yep. Yeah, William's a monster, dude. Yeah, really, just yeah. He's great, like one of those styles came out just picking right from the get go. It's like. You know, um, I said when when Shane left the band and I found out we were getting William, he was 19 at the time when he took the gig. You know, William was, wow. and uh, so we were sitting in the front lounge of the bus talking about it. You know, who what was going to happen, and and I said, well, boys, it looks like we're getting a puppy, <laughs> getting a puppy, <laughs> and he's like worked out to be incredible. He's a monster, man. My point is, you have a great band. Yeah, it is a great it's, band, man. Kevin Adams playing keys. Wonderful. Uh, we have Dan Galish on steel. We had Randy Beavers for a while, and we have Dan Galish playing steel, and uh, and Diffie and me, and um, it's pretty damn fun, man. Band is cracking. So that's that's awesome. You know, I mean, there's no point in going out there and doing it if it's going to suck. You know, no. it's like. It's hard enough as it is without without having to put up with that too. Right. But to your point, I mean, you know, I guess the reason people are drawn to using the hi hat as their 
markers because I mean that's what's generally marking the steadiest pulse I suppose you know if you need to, you know if you're looking for like a somebody needs an eighth note kind of pulse to for them to be able to hear the time that's where you're going to get it you know down parts of the song the intros yeah I mean and, and, and even through you know I mean you know you got you got uh, you know you get two and four but the rest of the time you know mm-hmm. I mean it's there but I think that's why they do it because that's the place where they can find the most uninterrupted steady Mm -hmm. pulse if that's Mm -hmm. what they want Mm -hmm. Um, you know I guess it's uh, I I guess it's just an you know how how everybody interprets feel and you know for for each for every drummer I guess guess maybe my question to you is like what's your relationship with the click has it ever been a thing, or is you like eh, no? I mean, it's uh, okay. I just never let it be a thing. You know, I, it's gotcha. another tool. It's a tool. It's not there to push me around or tell me what to do. Gotcha. I tell it what to. You know. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's there for me mm-hmm. as you know. It's like looking at your speedometer. I go back to the same. You know. Yeah. yeah. You know. I know. You know. I know generally what my speed is, more or less. Mm-hmm. Like, just when you're driving your car, if you covered up your speedometer, you'd know, basically, you know, roughly where 40 miles an hour was, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and you drive enough, we play enough, we know where that is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't know exactly where 40 miles an hour is, mm-hmm. but the click does. Yeah. And so, I let the click do its job, and then I do my job. And my job, you know, I mean... The, the the thing about the click to me is or there's a couple of things. First of all, it makes it's there to make my boss's job easier because it's removing that variable yeah. as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And like we were talking about, you know, if you're singing and it's five o'clock in the afternoon and it's 105 degrees or you're at elevation and there is no oxygen and that's like, you know, that's hard shit, man. Singing like, you know, and if somebody's counting stuff off and it's fast and you're trying to pump all those words out and catch your breath and you know it's it's extra stress on your guy so take that out you know that makes you know removes one variable and the other thing to me is like it's kind of not and i thankfully knock on i'll use my head for wood um knock on wood uh it's the to me it's the great argument ender yeah you know it's like there is no there can be no dispute man there it is. It's the same every night, you know. So as far as that goes, there's never any. Well, it felt fast. Well, it felt fast because sometimes shit just feels fast, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I've had that too. Like you know, you're you're like you know, I'm you're dead nuts on the click, but for whatever reason, you know, you ever have those nights where everything just feels like it's a lot faster than it usually is, or yeah. like a lot slower than it usually is, and it's not. It's the same. It's yeah. you. You know, yeah. it's your surroundings. It's whatever's happening. It's the acoustics of the room. It's, I don't know what, mm-hmm. a million things. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's just kind of... It's an interesting... I guess that's the thing. It's like this, it's all these variables and kind of how... Yeah, drums are, are the worst. I mean, to me, because drums are an acoustic instrument that's being amplified. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're you're completely at the mercy of the acoustics of whatever room you're in. Right. Most people, you know, I mean, yes, to an extent, but a guitar player or a bass player or a keyboard player, whoever else, has the ability to manipulate their tone and their sound through the guitar and through their amplifier. We don't have that option, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's your your option is, you know, you can 
approach the room differently dynamically. You can try and change your tuning. You can muffle. You can whatever. But at the end of the day, you're still, you know, you're kind of at yeah. the mercy of whatever the acoustics are. And that changes everything, too, because I don't know about anybody else, but I play when I can hear my shit and it sounds good. Makes me want to play a whole lot. I know. You know? I know it. It's hard, man. They struggle through those nights where it's just sucking and it's like, yeah. oh my God, is it is over? It, and is is Joe on ears? Is everyone on ears? Yeah. Joe is on he has ears and he wears one in and keeps one out. And then he's got two wedges on the front of the stage mm-hmm. and that are like from nineteen eighty five and are you know, we use the we use the uh you know, everyone has their own name for it. The, the salad shield, the sneeze guard, whatever you want to call it. And I, okay. I call it the terrarium. Yeah. Uh, but depending on where we are, and once again, you know, on the acoustics and my proximity to Diffie and whatever else is going on, sometimes they use the plexi in front of the kit, you know. And I always joke and tell people, that's not to keep me out of his mic. That's to keep his wedges <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's so Oh that's dude, hilarious. I've seen birds explode fly in front of those just disintegrates. <laughs> like holy shit. Yeah, they're loud, dude. He likes them loud. Do you guys have local bands or other acts that open up for you when oh, you guys yeah. do it? Okay. Yeah, it just depends on what we're doing. Yeah. Like if we do shows where we're headlining, yeah. Usually there'll be, you know, sometimes way too many local openers. It's like, mm-hmm. man, we don't need bands starting at 12 o'clock, dude, you know, because that means I have to get out of my bunk at 8 o'clock and <laughs> sound check at 9 o'clock. I don't like that. Right. So, but yes, yeah, so when it's local, you know, or when it's when it's us headlining a show, yeah, it's a local opener or two mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And then, you know, the festival thing, you know what that is. It's just like, like that one in Lynchburg we just did was us and uh, Cassidy Pope and oh, cool. uh, Easton Corbin. And oh, wow. So we've done, you know, it just depends on what it is. If it's us as a headliner, yeah, always yeah. locals. Yeah. So I know there's there's listeners that are in the situation where they're outside of a major music environment, music community. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of their intro is, you know, they've got a chance to play, open up for a national act, mm-hmm. whether it's country or otherwise or whatever. So, and then it may be that, then that leads them to... Nashville or Atlanta or mm-hmm. LA or whatever. And I think what we experience is that we play with our friends and we start bands and we get all this stuff together and then we realize this is what we want to do and then we find the town where we can do it. Right. Yeah. And then we get our asks. Kicked. Oh, yeah. Get a hand. We, right, we go, right. We go from the big fish in the small pond. Absolutely. The small fish. That's big... what I tell everyone. That's what I've always said to people. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Hey, you might have been uh, the big fish where you came from, but guess what? This town is full of them. Yeah. Yeah. And they will eat you. Right. Yeah. I've always found that on the road with some country acts, you get a lot of local bands that are playing and they're you know they're they're covering the the latest country stuff or whatever mm-hmm. and 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 i hear some wonderful players that are just they're on the cusp right of being able to come to a place like nashville and really do great things but sometimes there's something just missing just a little thing i mean i hear a facility i hear you know whatever they're They've 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 been to maybe Rich Redmond's Drummer Weekend. Right. They've uh, they've watched things on on YouTube. They've listened to Working Drummer Podcast. Whatever mm-hmm. you know, they they, they, they kind of like they're getting their their self together with 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 running a click with doing the things. And, and I'm I'm kind of 
for anybody that's listening, I'm kind of describing the typical Nashville drummer. Yeah. So not to isolate anybody. uh, No, those are kind of the tools of the trade here. So tools of the trade here for maybe what you've seen and you've experienced. Yeah. What would be your advice for a drummer that is playing with their local band, but is ready to leave Roanoke and come to Nashville or that you've seen do you ever like see these bands and like hey good drummer but yeah well you already answered that question before you even asked it because the okay. answer is that what they're missing is the ass kicking uh, you need to come here and get your ass handed to you a few times and mm-hmm. figure out how it really works yeah. you know where you live you know yeah sure man there you're the guy but you know there's only three other guys here, the guy that just delivered your pizza will probably eat your lunch. You know what I'm saying? It's a whole different animal. So you better, you know, my advice is this. Come prepare to get humble. Don't come here with an attitude like you're going to set this town on its ass. Because I've seen a lot of guys who came here like that. And guess what? They're gone. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, don't, don't just come here and wander into this shit without some kind of preparation, especially now, as far as, you know, you're going to have to get yourself right, man, have a place to be, you know, to live and have some other source of income until you get situated. Because I'm going to tell you, the first few years that you're here or anywhere where there's a real scene and a lot of cats who know what's going on, you're going to scuffle because it's just the way it is, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so I mean, if you if you know in your heart of hearts that that's what you want to do and where you're at, then my advice to anybody would be that you're just going to have to take the leap of faith, but don't do it completely blindly. You know, get yourself set up for success. Don't wander into this shit unprepared because you will get spit out the other end quickly. Well, it, it, I think what you're saying really. It's it's not the answer I expected. I mean, I, I was thinking like just very specific kind of things that. But but you're talking about attitude, just being open, really open to uh, input change. You're gonna you need to come here with the in the spirit of growing and learning and not being afraid to be shown by people what you're doing wrong, mm-hmm. you know, or what you know what I'm saying, or what you're missing, or what is expected of you on the next level of performance and and being in this industry because you know the gigs that you played in your hometown where you're playing three sets a night in the bar and maybe they give a shit maybe they don't it's not it's different here you know when you when you step out onto the stage and there's 25,000 people they're not there to just have beer they're there to see your ass and you need to have it together and give them what they came to see you know and do do the job so the mindset is different I mean you know, you never want to suck. You always want to play good, but you just you just have to be prepared to uh, to do those things that take you to the next level of being a professional. Have your gear together, have your attitude together, know the material. You know, it, it's all there. It's all it's pretty basic shit, but guys seem to forget to do it. You know, uh, a lot of cart in front of the horse. You know, come here chest beaten and. 
you know, talking about how great you are and whatever else, that's not going to get you too far. And coming into town and running your mouth and talking shit about guys is not going to do you any good either. Because no, no. we all know each other. Yeah, yeah. We all, if you're listening, we all <laughs> know each other. So <laughs> before you say anything that's going to get you in a shitload of trouble, think about what I just said. So, yeah. But, you know, just be prepared, man, because it's not. And, dude, you know as well as I do. Holy crap. 20 years ago, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of competition. There always is competition here. But now, mm-hmm. woo. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you know, you better be prepared to stand in there toe-to-toe, man, and slug it out. Because guess what? For every gig there is, there's 30 guys who want it. Well, and keep in mind, you know, I mean, th- there's, I'm trying to. You know, it's like there's so many really wonderful players that I'm never going to be able to touch as long as I live. I could practice all day, every day, and still not be able to do what some of these guys are doing. Some of these guys that are half my age. But what is it that you can bring to the table where someone is going to call you? Right. You do what you do. I mean, you know, don't worry about, man, there, you know, if I didn't play the drums because I thought there was somebody who was a better player than I am, I wouldn't play the drums. <laughs> you know, Vinny would be enough to take me out of the fucking game. I'd be like, well, that's it for me, kids. I'm, I'm all done. So, you know, there's, there, man, I've always said good players always work. You know, it's not, you don't have to be good people. Work. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, absolutely. And that's a, you, that, yes, you make a very strong point. Cause I always, I've always maintained that too. It's like, you know, guys will take someone who's a little bit less of a player, but a much better person because mm-hmm. you're going to be spending a lot of time with, you know, nobody likes a guy who's a pain in the ass or argumentative or just doesn't, you know, can't, you know, can't hang whatever, man. Mm-hmm. And that really, that's kind of another important point. It's like the hang is, crucial yeah almost more important than the gig yeah because the gig lasts 90 minutes but the ride to the gig lasts two days so (laughs) wait two days (laughs) you know what i mean so it's like you're gonna be in that flying germ tube with 10 other guys for 48 hours or more you better be able to get along with them so i I was listening to an interview yesterday with mark knopfler yeah he's got a new record out and just talking about all the cool things that he's done over the years. And he was, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I'm trying to remember exactly what he said, but he's like, we get into rock and roll because we think it's going to be easy. And it turns out it's a lot of work. A lot of work. Yeah, man. Because that whole, that, that song, um, Money for Nothing, is that the, I don't know if that, yeah. that's the right I title. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. He, he heard somebody that was loading TVs and watching MTV. He's like, man, that's right, not going to work, dude. And he, was, mm-hmm. he basically like, Overheard this conversation and wrote the song based on this. Yeah. That's that's not where, man, you get your money for nothing and blah, blah, blah. You know, based on right. He goes, dude, it is work. Oh, yeah, man. Well, it's like, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning of this whole thing. It's like, you know, people get very enamored and they're very excited about the whole thing because all they saw was lots of lights and, you know, like freaking giant PA and the whole shit. And, you know, you didn't see that I just spent the past 17 hours riding on a bus feeling like shit ate a crappy flat meat sandwich for lunch and <laughs> haven't slept in my own bed in six days and I'm sick of you and everybody else and yeah. and I'm going to walk out on stage and you are going to think that it's the greatest damn thing that ever happened. You're not yeah. going to know. And that's the job. I mean, yeah, you know. Right. But right. it all, you know, every job has their shit. But, you know, 
people just don't see that. They only see the exciting, you know, shiny, good part. I kind of like had the starter kit because I went, I was in Atlanta, you know, started out in New York where I was kind of like, you know, I was the big fish up there and there Mm -hmm. were a few other guys that were like the working guys in town. And and then I went to Atlanta and then, so now I've gone, you know, I've gone up a couple of rungs on the ladder and now I'm dealing with bigger fish and bigger cats. And then I came here and it was like, oh shit. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you start running into... Again, like the Eddie Bears and Paul Limes and Greg Morrows and mm-hmm. Cromwells and yeah. shit. The list goes on. I mean, how much time you got? Near Z and oh, no, Chester a- and, yeah, yeah. you know, I could we could just do two hours talking about who's a badass that lives here. Right. So that, to me, was like, you know, very eye-opening. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I say to anyone who wants to come here and do this, man, come humble, dude. Be real. Mm-hmm. Do what you do. And, and be humble and be cool and try and, to, you know, remember that you're not in, you know, Podunkville where you came from. This is a whole other situation. So it's not going to be, you know, not going to be like it was. But that to me was like eye, the most eye-opening thing. It's like, holy shit, go see Mike Henderson at the Bluebird, John Gardner and Glenn Wharf, and just fucking want to cry. Yeah. You know, it's like. These are the swinginess, groovinest motherfuckers that ever lived. And I'm like, what am I doing here? I, you know? <laughs> but there, and that's what you got to get over, man. It's like, you know, good players can work and, you know, just be cool and do what you do. Did you ever read that book called Effortless Mastery? I have. Okay. So, get ready to read it again. Yeah, man. I, I pull it out every once in a while when yep. I need a little dust off and get off my own back. Yeah. But it's that's a huge thing, you know, like, and guys do that a lot. And I, I have been guilty of it, and I think we're all guilty of it, mm-hmm. is that, you know, you just fucking beat yourself up mercilessly about a shit gig or a bad, you know, a bad night or a bad note or a bad whatever. It's like, man, first of all, it's just music. It's not that heavy. No one's ever died from it. It's going to be okay, you know. And, 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 and a show, and a live show, it's like once those notes are played, they're gone. That's it. So just let them go, move on. It's okay, you know. And that's why the studio is such a different animal because in the studio you can just go back and fix shit over and over and over until you get it like you want it. Right. In a live show, it's like that moment in time is past. It's gone. Yeah. It either happened or it didn't happen. And if it didn't happen, fuck, there's another one coming. Get you know, do it then, man. Mm-hmm. But don't you know? That's a huge thing. It's like beating yourself up over not doing what you think it well, is you're supposed right. to be doing. You know, Peter Erskine talks about one of his first teachers when he was a kid and said, okay, you, you, you made a mistake on that snare solo. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look outside. The sun is still shining. Right. Yeah, right. The earth is still That's it. Earth we're, is still we're not turning. hurtling off our axis. We're not going to, the sun is not hurtling towards the earth. We're going to be fine. He was waiting for the hammer to come down. Right. And his teacher said, it's, it's going to be okay. Yeah, it was a, it was a <laughs> note, dude. It's not, this is not an earth shattering thing at all, you know? all. How close to the record are you playing when you play with, with Joe? Um, is there a room for interpretation? Did anyone give you direction? Yeah, I mean, there. No, I mean, the main thing was actually I got I got a couple of things when I took the gig. One of yeah. which was what you were talking about, which is the uh, that ultimate collection thing where they went back and like remastered or recut a bunch. Okay, of right, yeah. Tracks, and then the other thing was a couple of uh, he did a live thing several years ago at Billy Bob's. Yeah, and that was the other thing that I got. Okay, and so. 
pretty much what I did was kind of took both of those things, learned the arrangements and all that kind of stuff and tempos and whatever. Things and, or use charts as a, uh, I, for a while? I don't, I try to never do that if I can yeah. not do that because uh-huh. I, I just don't, you know. I mean, I have done it when it's necessary, but I'd rather, if I have the time and can do it, I'd rather just learn it and memorize yeah. it. Right. Um, I think we all play better. Yeah, I don't want to. And plus, I i mean, I know charts. it just doesn't. I mean, I get having to do it. And like I said, I have. And I've had them on stage and everything else. And it doesn't take away from your ability to play or anything. But I don't think it looks as good to play a show when you're, you know, yeah, in that situation. Yeah, yeah. So I try not to do it unless I absolutely have to. And if I do have to do it, I try and put the charts where it's not like, you know, glaringly obvious that I'm looking at charts. Right. But I mean, I just learned to show because I had, you know, probably... Well, actually, they called me back and said, we want you to start sooner than we initially did. But, oh, cool. Um, so what I did was basically took this two recordings that I was given mm-hmm. and just learned arrangements and just listened to the parts on both of them. And then eventually you kind of, you know, you find your own, you know, you're going to play like you play no matter what. There's yeah, not really right, any way to right, stop right. that. But, you know, and when there are obviously if there are key phrases or grooves or ideas or whatever that need to be present to make the song be what it is then yeah you got to do that I remember but, asking you about the tempo of pickup man because i i play that with a mm-hmm. handful of people and i love it. it's it's so fun and yeah it's way and, fun and i you know i was like do you shuffle the hi-hat do you play straight like what's your interpretation of it because you're playing with the guy you know yeah yeah, well, I mean, I play that. I mean, I play all that stuff, you know, pretty close. It's the it's the shuffle thing with that tune, obviously, because yeah. that's kind of what that right. is. What that is, but uh, the main difference with Diffie is that the <laughs> li- <laughs> no, I mean, like you know, right. yeah, like quarter or whatever, the, you know, broken show. The live uh, tempos of everything live are a lot faster. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, than record, that was kind of a shock because I was like, oh shit! And I heard the original like like John Deere Green is you know half the tempo that it is live i'm not that may be an exaggeration but it's a lot slower and so i was like holy shit especially if you hear it on the radio after especially if you hear it like five minutes after you just finished the show and then they're playing it on the pa after you're done it's like it's a little suspect (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like i i sort of recognize this song so that's an interesting song there because that the verse is boom boom tap boom Boom, boom, right. Yeah. So that's probably one of those signature. Yeah, that kind of has like, to be there. Okay, that's not what I would choose. Maybe off the get go for a lot of us, but that was a choice in the studio. Right, and it works really well with that song. Well, and again, that goes back to the whole thing of you know, if you want to come here and do this, then those are the kind of things that you should be paying attention to, because when guys do that kind of shit, it's not by accident. You know, it's and like maybe, that for a reason. And maybe it's not the exact lick, but maybe it's it's in the style of Eddie Bears, or in the style of and and uh, Lonnie Wilson. So if somebody says play a Lonnie Wilson fill, I'm going to hit the crash with the snare drum. You just you kind of understand those styles. The way we studied, you know, Elvin Jones. Like, okay, this is an Elvin Jones. Okay, n- no, I need more of a Tony Williams thing. Like, we know that. Right. We know that when we start to listen to especially when you're studying jazz and, and things like that we have these mile markers i think with any genre 
those are just as important. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, 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 we refer a lot to like a, a Ringo feel or, or a Bonham feel or, or something like that. So, I mean, those are, there's examples across the board. Yeah, well, I mean, there are, you know, I mean, throughout history, there are, have always been guys who are iconic because they were just innovators or just so fucking far ahead of everybody else that it became, you know, that became the thing, man. You know, like, mm -hmm. like how many guys since Bonham, uh, arrived have tried to cop his shit and play like that. Or, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? There are certain guys who, who changed everything by the way that they approached the music, you know, Earl Palmer, mm -hmm. fucking, there was no rock and roll yeah. before Earl Palmer. <laughs> You know, those guys invented it, man. You know, I mean, that's heavy duty. It's like that. Those are very, those are very iconic moments in time where where someone presented an idea or a concept that was so far ahead of everything else that was happening. Everybody just went whoa, you know. And it's like, so you you learn to pick up on the and those those are your mile markers for you know defining how you play inside of any of those genres. You know, like mm -hmm. if someone says, "I want a big." badass bottom feel on it you know exactly what they're saying and that you know it's the same with you know guys understand if you live here and have done this then you know yeah play that train thing like eddie does. you know that kind of mm -hmm. you know there are certain guys who do certain things that just become the benchmark right, for, right. you know and knowing it and sometimes you have to you have to interpret what the person is saying if the the producer or the artist. Oh, that's hard. So just I need this big sound, or I need this. They they're not going to cite maybe a specific song or or a drummer. But you right. know, you go through your rolodex and you think, oh, I hear I hear this Kenny Arnott. Well, the thing you need to yeah, and that's the thing is you have to really be able to like because sometimes it can be very difficult, and I'm sure you've encountered it, and we all have when someone's trying to tell you what they want you to do, but they don't know how to tell you what they want you to do. <laughs> so they're looking at you, they're going, I want you to go, you're like, I, what? <laughs> so your job is to like, you know, now I have to decipher what all that shit means and do something that's what you're asking me to do without really <laughs> knowing what it is you're asking Well, to I do. can tell you this, so, you, you know, know uh, uh, Louis Belson was tracking and the executive producer, the guy with the money with no musical. Right, of course. Uh, walks in the control room. Hey, fellas, it sounds great. I've got a suggestion. Can we try this an octave faster? There you go. And they said, you got it. No problem. That's no right. No problem. And they just they like did the, a little bit. Uh, that was it. Yeah. I like the old, uh, I forget who we were talking about. It was Howlin' Wolf or somebody. And uh -huh. came in, this dude came in the studio and introduced himself and said, uh, I'm the producer. Yeah, the producer, huh? Produce me a bottle of wine. <laughs> so, there you go. The guys with the money and no sense at all are usually the ones in charge. So. But, you know, it's hard to like, that's a kind of a hey job. Man, I said no politics. Oh, I'm, oh. Sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, fun, man. Thanks for opening your home. Oh, dude. Let me you're come over here more than welcome. I'm glad to, cool. glad to have you anytime. Thanks, you want Dave. some more coffee before it gets cold <laughs> while you're tearing that. down your stuff? Might do that. Do it. Thanks, Michael. All right, brother. Anytime, man. Thank you. So there's my conversation with Michael Grondo. Michael's one of those guys that's just been a part of the scene for as long as I've been in town. We both moved here at the same time. We shared a lot of the same gigs. It's a lot of fun to just sit down in his kitchen and dig a little bit deeper with what's been going on in the last 20 years since he's been in town. And um, that was a lot of fun. Stay tuned next week. Zach Albetta will be interviewing JT Thomas of FORQ. 
Snarky Puppy and his work in the Dallas scene. So that's going to be great. Check that out. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page, Patreon slash Working Drummer, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to get some bonus educational material. We've got some exciting stuff from former guests like Rob Mount coming up. He's got a video or some other gem that he's working on for us, and we're expecting something this week we can post. So uh, we've got other things like snare tuning, a PDF about practicing from Ben Caesar, some really great things that we're trying to offer those of you that can help support this podcast. But thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.